As you can tell, with everything that, that uh, we've been talking about here, this has been an incredible year of change. There's so much change going on. And uh, my gosh, I think um, change has been sort of the order of everything that we've been doing. And frankly, I'm kind of worn out, suffering from a little PTSD from all the change. But change is a huge topic in the New Testament. Now, it doesn't go by that word, that name all the time. Sometimes it's repentance, turning, converting, transforming. But this idea of fundamental change is a hallmark of Jesus' way. It's a hallmark of what he's trying to do. And yet at the same time, change is so difficult for so many of us. When it comes to us unbidden, when it comes to us from without, you know, we tend to resist. It it just seems like it's tearing our world apart. When we know that we need to change from deep within, we still have resistance to all of that. It is so difficult to affect change. And, you know, I've been thinking about 2016, now that it's getting close to being over, it has just been one of those years like I don't think I have experienced in the entire time that we have been working with the effect Some of you recall, it started right on January 6th with the suicide of of one of our closest friends and and one of our staff members. And from there, it went into a fire that was set upstairs on the 26th of January. And that just put us into three months of limbo, pretty much, trying to do everything we needed to do and trying to reinvent certain things and getting people situated Then the insurance companies lowered the boom on treatment centers and stopped payment and did all the things. And that is just the gift that keeps on giving, I'm telling you, because for the whole year we've been trying to react to that. We downsized, cut ourselves in half in in April. We're going to do it again now and, and try to get to a place where we can continue to serve the people that we really want to reach and yet survive, you know, financially as we go forward. So it's just been one thing after another after another. And and in the background of all of that sort of logistical change, there's been the run-up for me personally to my daughter's wedding, our daughter's wedding, that just occurred a couple of weekends ago. And, of course, the election. My gosh, you know, all that's in the background. You're looking forward to all of this change at the end of the year. And, uh, of course, what can we say about the election? I mean, how much change is there going to be with with all of that and the anticipated change? And and some people are resisting that change with everything that's in them. But here we are as a nation trying to undergo change. Here we are as a body trying to undergo change. And here we are as individuals trying to undergo change. I also head up another nonprofit that works primarily in Mexico, and we are transitioning that to new leadership. And so all of that has got to go. So there's more change there. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Something that we didn't even tell you about because we didn't want to talk about it until it was actually in the works was a possible move of the effect to San Clemente. Uh, A church that was disbanded down there had asked us if we wanted to move into that facility. And then after about a month or a month and a half of doing all our due diligence and trying to work on it, the the offer got pulled. And then a month ago, it got put back on the table. And now it got pulled again. I mean, it's just been absolutely insane. And that's big stuff. You know, trying to look at moving everything, you know, into a new location. And so all of that anticipated change was also in the mix. And if that wasn't enough, Marion and I are going to be moving. 
<laughs> down to San Clemente. And so for the last three months especially, we have been in hyper mode trying to get the house fixed up, do necessary improvements, do this, do that. The market, uh, the house went on the market uh, three weeks ago, so now it's you know not really living in your own house anymore because at a moment's notice you got to bolt so that they can show it and do open houses and do all the crazy things that they do. And it has just been nuts. It's nuts. Now, I pride myself on being a person who's good with change. You know, when we were talking to just a couple of the leaders of our 12-step meetings here that meet here about the possibility of going to San Clemente, immediately, man, they dug their heels in and they put up everything because they're old guys, you know, and old guys don't do really well with change, right? So they was like, oh, no, we like our, we like our rooms and we just love this and we love that and they didn't, they didn't want to go. That's understandable. But me, you know, I'm the purge king. So as we've been, you know, getting the house ready to sell, I've been the one who's pushing Marion. Come on, we've got to be ruthless about this. We've got to cut this down by 50%. If we haven't touched it in two years, we don't need it. Let's go. And Marion is going, well, but, you know, this was what the kids did. And so there's, there's that rub there. You know, it's just like, well, what are we going to let go? What are we going to keep? On the other hand, this is the fifth move that we've done in 22 years of marriage. And, but the first four were all within the first six years. And we've been where we are for 16 years. So, of course, that's a lot of stuff that has, that has built up. But back in the late 80s, you remember when Dances with Wolves came out, the movie Dances with Wolves, and everybody was kind of into Indian names? Well, Marion got the name from her family of Stands with a Suitcase. Because she was always moving. I mean, she'd be moving at the drop of the head. Always wanting. She's been in the same house for 16 years, and she is going just crazy, stir crazy. She wants to move so bad, you know. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I can purge. I can move. Well, it was just three days ago. We're sitting in our front room with the realtor, and now we put an offer on a house that was accepted, and then it was on contingency. But now someone's put an offer on our house which was on contingency, but then they just got an offer on their house. So all the dominoes are lining up, and I'm sitting there thinking, this could really happen. <laughs> kind of like that moment on election night where you think, this could really happen. Oh, my God. You know, it's just like, oh, my God. This and it was like I was transported into a movie for just a moment where I was sitting there, and I could literally see, because I'm looking straight into the hallway and, and the downstairs bathroom, I could see my dad there, you know, and we moved into that house 16 years ago to, to be able to live with my parents. And my father had Alzheimer's. And it's like I could see him there. I could see the kids at, at little ages running up and down the stairs. And I remembered our first night there. All the lights were out. And Sean, who's 20 now, was four. You know, Megan was small. And Marion and I sitting on the steps, you know, with this, just this one light on, just kind of looking around and saying, what do we do now? And here it is 16 years later, and we're getting ready to move. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm an old guy too who's resisting change. It's like weird. I never thought of my It's like, when did I become such a sap? When did I become so sentimental, you know, that, that this kind of stuff meant something to me. But as it's getting down to the, the edge here, it's like, yeah, you know, that, that pull, that, that, that resistance to the change that's coming is absolutely real to me. Now, on the other hand, in my defense, um, we got kicked out of the house yesterday for an open house. So I took um, my, 
our 20-year-old, Sean, to breakfast, and Marion went out to visit her folks. And so we're sitting at breakfast, and who knew, but my son really has become this total political junkie. He is so up on everything that's going on, and he's got all these opinions, you know, from here to, to next county uh, on everything, you know. And so he's telling me all this stuff in absolute terms, you know. He's saying, now with this election results, you know, this is going to mark the end of the Democratic Party, and no, 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 And he's saying all these things. And I'm just kind of laughing inside. I'm trying not to show him that I'm laughing, but I'm just kind of laughing inside. And I'm, I'm trying to point out to him more about the scope of history. Every election cycle, it's the end of some party or another. It's the end of something or another. And then they just turn around and they bounce right back. I tried to explain to him about the pendulum, the way the pendulum is constantly swinging, that it never stops, that it looks like the illusion is that it's stopping and you've got some stasis in some area, but it's not. You're just passing through that moment on to the next moment. Have you ever sat just quietly and just watched the sunlight through the window and the shadow move across the carpet? Have you ever just taken that time? I mean, you can literally see it move. It's amazing how things are always in motion. We forget that. Do you know how fast the earth is spinning? This blows me away. We're spinning at a thousand miles an hour. We're spinning at a th- so hey, that sun is moving across the ecliptic. Hey, those shadows are moving across the living room floor. And not only that, do you know how fast we're revolving around the sun? This really blew my mind. Sixty seven thousand miles an hour. In one twenty four hour day, we cover one point six million miles of space. You want to talk about change? You want to talk about motion? You want to talk about the illusion that we have of things staying in stasis? Nothing is ever in stasis. Everything is always changing. Everything is always moving. And so I'm sitting here telling him these things. And I believe them in my head. But as I, am I living as if that is really true? I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. I mean, we can say all this stuff and your heads can nod up and down and we can all agree, but are we living as if that's true? Because if that's true, if change is moving at 67,000 miles an hour through our world, how would we be doing things differently? Would we be doing anything differently? Would our attitudes be the same? Or would something be different? How can we know if we're actually resisting change? Because it's kind of sneaky. And we need to be able to ask ourselves that. We need to be able to understand, are we flowing with this change? Are we moving with God's Spirit? Or are we stuck someplace, trying to hold back with our finger in the dam? I put some quotes into the uh, bulletin today, and I'm going to take a look at these because some of them are just so good. Lao Tzu was uh, a Chinese philosopher back in the... They don't even actually know when he was born, but somewhere in the 5th or 6th century B.C., so maybe five or 600 years before Jesus. And he writes, Life is a series of natural and spontaneous changes. Don't resist them. That only creates sorrow. Let reality be reality. Let things flow naturally forward in whatever way they like. Beautiful. Hugh Prather, Just when I think I've learned the way to live, life changes. <laughs> Just when I think I have it all together, the rules get changed. George Bernard Shaw, progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything else. 
And Lao Tzu again, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you are heading. (laughs) I love that one. And then finally, Alan Watts. The only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance. Now we can all read these, and our heads can go up and down, and we can agree, and we, we know this to be true, right? In our heads, we know this to be true. We can mentally agree, we can mentally affirm and embrace all this. So does that mean we're changing if we do that? Well, yes and no. Don't you hate answers like that? But take a look right underneath at Mark 1. These are the first words that Jesus utters in the, in the Gospel of Mark. He's right out of the box. He's right out of the 40 days in the wilderness. And he hits the ground running and he says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we've got to do a little work here because those words in English don't carry the import of what he's trying to say. First of all, the word that was translated at hand is misleading because it really, what it means is it has already arrived. It's here. It's now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has already arrived. In fact, the kingdom never left. The kingdom was always here. You just didn't see it. You didn't understand it. You weren't ready to change into the implications that kingdom had in your life. So now, repent and believe. Now, what we think about repentance has to do a lot of times with regret and sorrow and contrition and all those aspects. But here, what repentance means is literally to turn, to change direction and turn. You're going this way and you're heading off the cliff. You're going to turn and go this way and you're not going to go off the cliff. Turn, change directions. And then believe can never be separated from trust in the original language. So really, what is Jesus saying? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is right now. And you can experience it. Literally, you become it when you change directions, move in a new direction, and trust that this good news, this news about the way that you are loved and the way that you are accepted is absolutely true. This is what he's trying to get at. And so really, both have to happen at the same time. It's not just a change of mind that gets us anywhere. We talk about this all the time in, in therapy groups and, and in counseling. You know, all we're doing here is talking. We're talking here. This is talk therapy. And we can get a, a point across. We can get a concept across. And you can grasp it. And you can hold on to it. And it can change your outlook and it change parameters of the way you look at life. But nothing really changes in terms of your emotions and the way you feel and the quality of your relationships and everything about your life until you actually do something. You literally repent. You move in a different direction. You change your behavior to be consistent with what it is that you now say you believe. When those two things are one, Jesus is saying, the physical change of direction and the trust and the belief become one thing, that really is kingdom. That's what this is all about. It's this change of mind that allows us to overcome the risk that we feel in changing direction, changing our behavior, our actions. It's both. It's always both. But nothing really changes until the action changes. I want to read you a little bit from Brendan Manning's book that I think illustrates this really, really well. This idea of 
the discrepancy that we sometimes see between what we say we believe and our actions, right? Now we're talking about how do we know if we're resisting change? Remember the question here. He writes, Am I to get depressed over the huge discrepancy between what I write and what I live? Shall I flay myself as a hypocrite because I often fail to practice what I preach? Should I spend days and weeks in self-recrimination because I am slow to forgive petty grievances, even though I myself have been granted gratuitous pardon by Jesus? An illustration. At a weekend retreat in Colorado Springs with ten close friends, my imposter, that is the sick, slick, and subtle impersonator of my true self, was mercilessly exposed. Led by the Spirit, my brothers told me that I was dishonest, stubborn, and prone to lies, and that self-will was running riot in my life. Nice retreat, huh? Did I gratefully and graciously receive their criticisms? No. No. Immediately, I became defensive. I sulked, pouted, and returned home to brood for several weeks. At that retreat, my incorrigible self-importance disallowed any challenge to my integrity. Fancying myself to be something before God, I dismissed my friend's censure as untrue, callous, and vindictive. Later, when the light of Christ dawned in my darkness, I sank to my knees and prayed with a sinful but, but honest tax collector in the temple. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I love this honesty. You know, Brennan Manning is one of my heroes. Marion and I named our youngest child after him. To read this and realize he goes through this himself, I can't tell you what a break that gives me. It's wonderful. I was ordained about 14 years ago. And uh, how much does that really change a person to just be ordained? You know, does it change anything at all? Well, fortunately, I have a wife, okay? And so... <laughs> anytime I'm starting to go off the rails, anytime I'm wondering about my change, um, she just gives me my title back, right? It'll go something like this. Oh, that's really nice, Pastor Dave. <laughs> See, that's the thing. How much do we really change? How much have we really changed? We put on these fine clothes or we put on a title. Does that really change anything? You know, no, it doesn't unless we are willing to change from the inside out. And that's the difference. I'm saying this stuff to you week after week. I believe this stuff to my core. Does my life always reflect that? No, it doesn't. Stone not yet smooth. It's like a ship captain who decides to turn the boat and he cranks the wheel. How long does it take for that ship to actually make the turn? especially if it's a big boat. It takes forever, it feels like. There's so many things in my life that I was sure that I had put a stake in and they were done. And then at the right moment, it just pops right back up again. There's that spike. There's that trigger. And I'm just left saying, you've got to be kidding me. Really? I've still got to feel this? And what I'm getting better at is not acting on those things. Hopefully you'll never know when I'm being triggered that way. But it's still there. It's like, how long is this going to take? But it really doesn't matter as long as we are continuing to move and continuing to take. Am I a hypocrite? Is Brennan a hypocrite? Because his life doesn't match up with what he writes. My life doesn't always match up with what I'm telling you. Absolutely not. That's not what hypocrisy is. I'm just a sinner. 
I'm just someone whose stone is not yet smooth. I believe this stuff. I just can't always live it. And that's the human condition, isn't it? But to be honest about these things, to, to just realize this is where we're at, but to see if there is resistance to change. Is there? And so the first clue to resistance to change, I'm going to give you three of them. The first one is discrepancy. As you look honestly at your life, is there a discrepancy between what you say, what you think, what you really believe, and what you do? Those ingrained patterns of behavior. If the two things are not one, right? maybe you're just still slowly turning the boat, or maybe you're really pushing against all the implications of what this really means. To act on what you believe, is it still too scary? Is it still too risky? Does it feel like you just can't go there? Are you dragging your heels? Are you putting up all of the stop signs? This is a way to look at life. This is a way to start to understand. Discrepancy is the first clue that we can take a look at. What's the second clue? The second clue I'm going to call wool gathering. (laughs) How many know what wool gathering means? It comes from the, the Middle English, and, and uh, back in the, in the old days, people would literally wander about and gather bits of wool that had been you know, uh, caught in brambles and bushes as the sheep walked through pasture and places, and they, if they're really poor, they'd just gather and glean all this stuff, and then eventually they could make something out of it. But, they were gather- but if you watch someone who's wool gathering, they kind of look like they're just aimlessly walking around, you know, slowly. And so wool gathering means aimless or, or pointless thought. It's daydreaming, absent-mindedness, you know, just kind of hanging in that, in that place of thought. So wool gathering. Do we spend a lot of time dreaming about the future? Do we spend a lot of time romanticizing the past? There seems to be someone, something that old guys do more and more, right? Roman- oh, the good old days, when the good old days happened. You know? Or God has this great plan for my future, a great plan for my life. And the implication is, I'm going to wait here until God unfolds it for me and drops it in. You know? But what that does, whether you're dreaming about the future, you're romanticizing about the past, you're not here and you're not now, and the future remains unchanged. And if you are romanticizing past and future, if your thoughts are all there, it means that you're not too thrilled about your present moment. And in your thoughts, in your wool gathering, you're running to escape it. You're resisting the change that is necessary right here, right now, to get where your spirit, your soul is telling you you really need to be but you engage in this practice instead. As a dodge, you know, and it's sneaky. It's not that you're doing this consciously. It happens. That's in the positive sense, but it can happen in the negative sense too. Regrets for the past, fear for the future, right? Jesus talks about this. Take a look at uh, the next citation there in the bulletins. At Matthew 6, verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus is trying to keep us locked in the here now. 
He's trying to keep us right here on point because he knows that being here now, being completely present to this moment, changes everything. Take a look at the next one in verse 33. Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. I love that line. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all else will be added. In other words, what is kingdom? Kingdom is the here now. Kingdom is the immersion in the presence of spirit and each other's presence, the quality of life that ensues from that kind of connection here and now. Seek that first. And God's righteousness, what is that? God's righteousness is unity. It's oneness. It's multiple things functioning as one. You go for those things first and everything else is added. This is what he's talking about. Stay here. Stay now. Focusing on the past and the future is the same as procrastination. It's the same as paralysis. We will find ourselves not moving forward, not changing if we aren't focused here because we'll never take the risk that is implied in the movement towards something in a way that we've never done before and never gone before if we can't move, if we can't see that we're right here and right now. Back to Brennan Manning. Look at his reads. Often trust or change begins on the far side of despair. When all human resources are exhausted, when the craving for reassurances is is stifled, when we forego control, when we cease trying to manipulate God and demystify mystery, then, at our wit's end, trust change happens within us. And the untainted cry, Abba, into your hands I commend my spirit, surges from the heart. This is what we were talking about last Sunday. Sin is behovely, remember? Sin is useful, sin is necessary, because without the failing, without the fall, we'll never experience that we're loved no matter what. And we'll never be able to get on the far side of that despair, get on the far side of that failing, to understand what the up starts to look like. Listen how Richard Rohr says basically the same thing. You will not know for sure that this message is true until you are on the upside. You will never imagine it to be true until you have gone through the down yourself and come out on the other side in larger form. You must be pressured from on high by fated circumstances, love, or God because nothing in you wants to believe it or wants to go through it. That downside that descent. This change is a secret of the soul, known not by thinking about it or proving it, but only by risking it at least once and allowing yourself to be led at least once. Those who have allowed it know it is true, but only after the fact. If we're wool gathering, if we're thinking, but we're not diving into action in the present moment, we'll never understand what is really going on, because we won't have experienced the shape of that journey, the descent and the ascent. Sometimes a change comes from, quote-unquote, on high. Sometimes it comes from without. Things are foisted upon us. Things happen to us in ways that we have no control over. It's dictated to us. But sometimes a change comes from within. 
that deep yearning for something else, that, that knowing, that knowledge, that something else is really at issue, that we should be experiencing something more, and that brings the change. How do we respond to either one of those, from without or from within? Do we just keep thinking on it? Wool gathering? Or do we finally jump in and make something start to happen, even if it's wrong, make something start to happen and then course correct as we go and experience the constant presence of God no matter what is going on. How about the third clue? This is offendability. How easily are you offended? What offends you? These are things that we sometimes don't think of. And this one is the sneakiest, I think, of all. Because we really don't see it coming. We can really think that we're making large changes. But we're really not. I've told this story in here before, you know, but I'm going to tell it again in a shorter form. You know, my mom was always trying to get me to come back to Catholicism once I had branched off. And she would always greet me with tracks and tapes and things to try to bring me back to the one true church and uh, one time she thought she really had it. She had found a Protestant apologist who in his research on Catholicism so that he could refute it and bash it, ended up becoming converted to Catholicism. And now what was he doing? He was researching and bashing Protestantism. What changed in the man? Nothing. He was the same guy. He just changed uniforms. What are you still offended at? He was offended by Catholicism. He converted to Catholicism and now he's offended by Protestantism. Nothing changes. I've told the story in here about the drunk who became a monk. You know, the drunk who took great pleasure in uh, drinking all his friends under the table and he goes and joins the monastery, tries to change his evil ways and then he takes great pleasure in fasting his fellow monks under the table at the great fast before Easter. What changed in the young man? Nothing. You were a Cubs fan, now you're a Cleveland fan. You're a Cleveland fan, now you're a Cubs fan. You're a Democrat, now you're a Republican. You're a Republican, now you're a Democrat, but you're still throwing Molotov cocktails over the fence to the other side. What changed? Nothing. What are you offended at? True change is going to take you into a completely different space. True change is going to take you to a place where you see the commonality, you see the connection among us. And you finally get to the place where you're not offendable anymore. Things change when we can finally do this. We're deluding ourselves if we think that we have converted to our faith, that we're dedicated to our new religion, our new spirituality. But without the humility that connects us to everyone, the ability to be unoffended, there really has not been any change. You've just changed your uniform. You've changed your side of the street, but nothing interiorly has really changed. Without humility, we lose all of that. Take a look at what Jesus says at Matthew 8, starting right at verse 1. At that time, the disciples approached Jesus, saying, who, So, who is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? And Jesus, having summoned a young child, he set him in the middle of them and said, Positively, I say to you, unless you are turned around, figuratively, changed inwardly, and become like such young children, by no means shall you enter into the kingdom of the heavens. 
Now let's set the stage a little bit. Because in Mark's gospel, Jesus already knows what they're talking about. They were walking somewhere, going, and the, the uh, disciples were having a fight among themselves about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus instituted his kingdom. Now, they're misinterpreting kingdom entirely anyway. They think it's going to be a political kingdom. It's going to be an actual territory. He's going to kick out the Romans and establish a sovereign nation. And man, they wanted their place at the table. Who is going to be sitting at the right hand? Who is going to be sitting at the left hand? And they were offended by each other's presumption that they should be the ones sitting at those places of honor. And they were worried about their future in this kingdom. So they're back there squabbling and doing all this stuff. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, what were you guys just talking about? You know, Here, they come to him and they ask him, who's going to be the greatest? Now picture that for just a second. That kind of attitude, that kind of tension, that kind of head-to-head butting between the disciples who still don't get at all what Jesus is trying to tell them. And in perfect Jesus fashion. He doesn't answer them. He looks over and he beckons this child over and he brings a child comes over, probably came bolting over to Jesus because Jesus was a kid magnet anyway, right? And you can imagine that scene. You know, they're all angry and tense and he's just playing with this kid and, you know, rubbing his face and smiling. And then he turns him around and says, if you can't change inwardly, if you can't become like this, You're never going to understand anything that I'm talking about. You'll never know what this kingdom is about. And the whole tone of that gathering changes in that instant. It changes from all that contention, all those adults fighting with each other, to just this tender moment with Jesus and this child in their midst and showing them this is what it looks like. Can you try to understand this child who doesn't think about anything self-consciously, who just plays and runs and doesn't know he or she is naked, just there, accepting things as they are, gathering it in, excited by everything, connected to everything. This is what it looks like. It has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has nothing to do with lordship. This is what it's all about. That's fundamental change. And they weren't anywhere close in terms of that. And once again, he just tells them, you know, this is it. This object lesson that I'm giving you is what I'm trying to get across to you and have been trying to get across to you all these years. Brendan Manning, once again. Humble men and women do not have a low opinion of themselves. They have no opinion of themselves because they so rarely think about themselves. The heart of humility lies in undivided attention to God, a fascination with his beauty revealed in creation, a contemplative presence to each person who speaks to us, and a de-selfing of our plans, projects, ambitions, and soul. Humility is manifested in an indifference to our intellectual, emotional, and physical well-being and a carefree disregard of the image we present, just like a child. You see, no longer concerned with appearing to be good, we can move freely in the mystery of who we really are, aware of the sovereignty of God and of our absolute inefficiency, and yet moved by a spirit of radical self-acceptance without self-concern. Humble people are without pretense, 
free from any sense of spiritual superiority, and liberated from the need to be associated with persons of importance. The awareness of their spiritual emptiness does not disconcert them. Neither overly sensitive to criticism nor inflated by praise, they recognize their brokenness, acknowledge their gifts, and refuse to take themselves too seriously. This is the picture of true change, humility, childlikeness. But here is the kicker. Because when Jesus say, be like this child, the word that he uses is talia. And talia means child, small child. But it also means a domestic servant or a bond slave in their culture. You put the two together and you get the fullness of where Jesus is going with all of this. Because the one thing for all the child's attributes that he doesn't, that she doesn't have, is volition. A child can't choose to be anything other than what the child is. They're just developmentally not able to be anything else. But the slave, the servant, chooses. Maybe the the choice is only to serve or die, but it's still a choice. And that choice makes all the difference in the world. Everything changes when we bring choice back into the picture. All three of these clues, if a resisting change, discrepancy, wool gathering, offendability, have one thing in common. And the thing that they have in common is unawareness. It's when we are unaware of these dynamics in our lives that we move into them. We don't see the discrepancies between what we think and what we do. We don't see that how all of our our thoughts are keeping us from acting now in the present moment, risking the things that we need to risk in order to really change. And we don't see how our offenses, how we keep ourselves separated from somebody, no matter who that changing person is, keeps us in the same place of spiritual superiority, and never moving into that humility, into that place of perfect freedom where we don't have to worry about those things. We don't have to deal with those things. We don't have to keep ourselves up in this plane. We can just relax and be, knowing that we're no better and no worse than anybody else, and that's the beautiful place to be. Somehow we learned that we're only going to be loved if we're different. And what Jesus is showing us is we're loved because we're the same. Everybody is loved exactly the same. True change is this process of repentance and belief in good news. Changing directions, turning, and trusting that the news is really good, that we really are loved this way. And if you want change in your life, true, fundamental change, there are always only two tools that you have to work with. Awareness, and opposite action. That's it. That's what we've got. But in order to use the opposite action, in order to choose the thing that you don't normally choose in a situation, any given situation, you have to be aware that there's a choice. The contemplative practice, everything that we've been talking about for weeks now, is the practice of awareness. It is the learning to be aware. It's a technique of awareness, if you will. How do we just step aside from all of that noise, all of that stuff that goes constantly in our heads and be right here, right now, so we can see the change that is before us. We can see the emotional trigger and we can choose differently and we can move in a fundamentally different direction. Always toward the child, always toward the servant, always toward that place of humility, 
understood as just seeing reality for what it is, that's really all humility really is. The ability to see the resistance to our change is the way that we can actually move through it. And this resistance to change, what is it anyway? It's a focus on self. It's a focus on us. It's a focus on all the fears of our own unacceptability. The things we're afraid that keeps us from being acceptable, being connectable, being loved. That is the resistance to the change. We can't risk anything beyond that. To let go of trying to be good enough, gosh, I can't tell you. When that finally starts to happen, when you can finally let go of trying to be good enough in other people's eyes, in God's eyes, you can't even imagine what a a weight that takes off, what a burden that takes off. To stop trying to be good enough and just see the goodness that is right here, right now, in Jesus' presence, that changes everything. Let's pray. Well, Father, I suppose in one way you are change itself. Your spirit is always in motion. It means motion. Help us to just allow ourselves to be breathed. Allow ourselves to be blown by the wind. Allow ourselves to move. Help us to stop holding on to a lamppost in a 67,000 mile an hour breeze. Let go. Because once we do and we're moving with the breeze, no matter how fast it's going, it feels still. It feels calm. Everything moving in the same direction at the same speed is complete stillness, quiet. We can hear the presence of your spirit. Help us to understand that when the stiff breeze is in our face, it's because we aren't flowing with you. And we need to flow. Even when things are difficult, interiorly we can feel the flow even when outside we feel the confrontation. That's where we need to go, Father. And we just ask you to give us the strength, give us a little bit of trust that we can take the first steps in a new direction. And we thank you. We thank you for loving us as you do. We thank you for the ability to love you back and to know that we can only do that because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.